It is my privilege to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. I would love it if you would turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we will be looking at verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll be looking at verse 14 through 7, 1. I don't know about when you were a kid. Um, maybe this is generational. Maybe you can guess my age from, from my illustrations. I don't know. But when I was a kid, it was often we were told, hey, don't run in the sanctuary. Like, if you want to run, you can run out in the foyer. That's fine. Run in the parking lot. Well, that has problems too. But don't run in the sanctuary. And kind of the idea of not running in the sanctuary, this is a holy place. It's a holy space, right? We need to keep it set apart. It's not like the, the foyer and other spaces. Um, sometimes, I, so I teach Bible at a Christian school, I've sometimes heard students say things that are kind of on the edge of appropriate, and somebody will say, this is Bible class. As if, you know, you could say that in your other classes, English class or math class, but not Bible class. Or, or this is a church. Like, you could say that outside the church, but not inside the church. And it kind of comes from this, this perspective, this idea that I want us to think about a little bit of what is holy, Right? And what is holy space? And what does it mean to be, um, as the Bible teaches, what does it mean for us to be the temple of the Holy Spirit? I, I want to dwell on that a little bit, the temple of the living God. Um, in Paul's day, there was an actual temple. And the, the temple that Paul, Paul grew up as, as Jewish, heavily immersed in Jewish culture, knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. Um, the temple was where they would offer sacrifices, and the temple was a holy place. You didn't just walk into the temple as a tourist, like you might. Um, I, I had the privilege of visiting some cathedrals this summer in France and in um, Czech Republic, and it was really cool to be able to walk into these, to these huge, beautiful buildings. And there is a bit of quiet. You don't yell, hey, come look at this. There's a, there's a sense of the holy, perhaps, if you walk into those spaces, but still you walk in. You, you walk into the, the cathedral and you look around. Um, but the temple wasn't a place you just walked in, particularly the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was a space that only the high priest could go in, only on certain um, holidays, certain days of the year. Holy days um, is what I mean by holiday, holidays, not like, happy days, but set apart different spaces and places. So Paul, when Paul is saying that we, as believers, as he does in 1 Corinthians, and he does in our text today in 2 Corinthians, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, he's not saying it lightly. He's not saying it lightly. There's something to this. There's something deep and something that we should be very careful about. A temple is not something to be taken lightly. Um, even as we were reading, as Pastor Jay was reading from Psalm, I think it was 78, I could be wrong, but holiness befits the house of God. The house of God there, he's talking about the temple. It needs to be set apart. It needs to be different. In this text today, Paul is telling the Corinthians who they are in Christ. He's reminding them who they are in Christ. And holiness isn't motivated by who you could be. And I think this is really important in understanding the gospel. I don't want to get the wrong message here. Paul is not saying that if you're a really good boy or a really good girl, if you do all the right things, if you stop doing all these sins and start doing these things instead, then you will be the temple. Then you will be the place where God dwells. That's not what he's saying in this text. 
what he's saying is, you are the temple of the living God, and therefore, live like it. Be who you are. Holiness isn't motivated by who you could be as a Christian. Holiness is coming to grips with who you are in Christ and living accordingly. So as we look at 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is is the most personal uh, of all Paul's epistles. It's sometimes neglected. I think the personalness and the neglect sometimes go together because he's talking a lot about his ministry and his apostleship, and it seems a little bit distanced from us. But we get this grip of, and view of who Paul is, his passion for the gospel, his passion for the, the Corinthian church. And in this letter, Paul is defending his apostolic authority, and he's seeking to reconcile in his relationship with this, this church. So the tone of this book is emotional and deeply personal. And last week with Pastor Ben, we saw that although life, Paul's life of toil and hardship did not reflect what the culture viewed as success, what the culture viewed as glorious, as the culture viewed what a, an apostle should look like or what a philosopher should look like, Paul's calling on them and on us to evaluate success and see how God defines and measures it, not the way that the world and the world system defines and measures it. So in today's text, Paul is urging the Corinthians not to be unequally, or maybe more literally, differently yoked with unbelievers. He is calling them to be who they are and to live into their high calling. They are not part of the world. They belong to Christ. They are the very temple of the living God. And as those indwelt by the Spirit of God, they have been called and empowered to live and think according to kingdom, not earthly principles. So I'd love to read the text for us. I'm going to read a long section of text here just now, um, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll look at um, the text um, bit by bit. So uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness. What accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is a name for Satan. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And then I think this is the point that he's driving at. The rest of the text will flow from it. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in a time of of change, rapid change and cultural shifts and and confusion and difficulty and hardship with knowing how to walk and how to live today um, as Christians, that your word is a solid place for us to stand. That your word gives guidance. That even though this, this book was written thousands of years ago, that you breathed it out through your Holy Spirit and that it speaks to us today. 
that I believe this, Father. You speak to us through your word. Thank you for your word. Father, I pray for us this morning that we will catch a glimpse of who we've been called to be and who we are, not because of our, our good works, not because we've earned it, not because we've been holy um, up to this point, but because you have made us to be this and you have given us your spirit and we've been made alive with your son. Father, I pray that your word will speak to us I pray that your word will convict where we need to be convicted, to be motivated where we need to be motivated. Um, Father, we, we believe that you are alive and that your word is alive. And so we trust in that promise this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name and in the power of the Spirit. Amen. So these verses here that we just read, I, I believe are flowing from the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. I don't want to go into this in depth but some people believe, some scholars believe that the verses we just read is, are kind of an interpolation, maybe a, a different letter that Paul wrote inserted into, into the text here. And the reason I want to mention that is I do think that that's a mistake and a misunderstanding of what's going on in the text. Because I, I think that this passage is really connecting with what's going before and what comes after. So throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul has been contrasting himself with these, what he calls, maybe facetiously a bit, these super apostles. And these super apostles are very eloquent. And Paul is um, supposedly somebody who's very impressive in his letters, but in person, not that much. That's actually something they would say about him. So the super apostles, they're very eloquent. They're very impressive in the pulpit, you might say. They have these letters of recommendation that they carry around and say, hey, this guy's great. And Paul doesn't have those things. But Paul has the gospel, and Paul's contrasting himself with these super apostles who look impressive in the world's perspective with his weakness and his suffering. And you might think, well, you have letters of recommendation and eloquence and weakness and suffering. Which would you want? But Paul is saying that the wisdom of Christ, the wisdom of the world, is not, are not the same thing. Uh, you, hopefully you heard that in our text this morning. What fellowship has light with darkness? They're not the same thing. So as Paul has given himself as an example of the ministry of the gospel through weakness and through suffering, he's telling them to break off their relationship with these false teachers, these super apostles, and, ha and make room. If you looked at 7 verse 2, Paul says, make room in your hearts for us. So I really do think that these, these verses that we just read flow from this argument of what it really means to be apostle, what it really means to do gospel ministry with false images of gospel ministry. And he's saying, you don't have room for both of us. So make room in your hearts for us. Don't be unequally yoked. Don't be differently yoked with these false believers. I believe that's flowing from chapters 4, 5, 6 into chapter 7. So I want to reread verses 14 to 16. And in these verses, Paul's urging the Corinthians to realize their high calling and the privilege that they have of being recipients of the gospel. What they have is better than what the world has to offer. Verse 14. Do not be equally yoked, unequally yoked, sorry, with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And again, where he's driving is the end. What agreement has a temple of God with idols? Now, this word yoked, um, you might come to mind like a farming 
um, kind of reference of two animals yoked together is commonly used in the literature of the day to kind of mean an ally. And you can kind of get the picture. You yoke yourself next to somebody. You want to both be pulling in the same direction. It wouldn't be very good if one person's pulling this way and one person's pulling this way. You're not going to get anywhere. Same with animals. You want them to be pulling in the same direction. Um, So if you're differently yoked, you're not of the same breed, of the same kind, or you're not going the same direction. You're not actually allies. It doesn't mean inferior or superior. Like if I said, my wife is way smarter than me and we're unequally yoked. That's not the point of the passage. Uh, The point of this passage is that they're different. They're not going the same direction. It's like a donkey and ox, not being of the same species, and they both want to go different ways. Now, there's three possible Old Testament references that Paul means to come to mind, and maybe he means all three of them. But in Deuteronomy 22.10, the Old Testament law says not to plow an ox and a donkey together, and you can see how that would fit with this idea of differently yoked. Um, In Leviticus 19.19, it says not to let your cattle breed with a different kind, and there's actually a a linguistic connection there I won't go into. But I believe that really what Paul is thinking of, and I think it's important in understanding the passage, What Paul is thinking of comes from uh, Numbers chapter 25. You may remember the story. It's okay if you don't. But in Numbers chapter 25, um, Israel falls into idolatry. There are these Moabite women that are sent into the camp, and these women lead Israel astray into worshiping false idols. And it says in the text that Israel yoked himself with Baal Peor. And so the idea there is that they yoked themselves to an idol. They yoked themselves to a false god. They yoked themselves to that which is demonic. They became enslaved by it, and they were punished with the plague. And I think as we see this develop, I'm talking about what accord does Christ have with Belial or with uh, idols have with the temple of the living God, I think he has in mind Numbers chapter 25 when Israel brought false gods into the camp into the community that was supposed to house God in the tabernacle. And they brought false gods into that community, into the presence of God. And God's anger was kindled against them. So to understand what Paul is and isn't saying. So this is one of those passages that sometimes, passages that sometimes is over-applied or under-applied. Um, and I think it's important to understand what Paul is and isn't saying. So I'm going to jump. You don't have to jump with me, but you can to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul is correcting a misunderstanding that the uh, Corinthian church had about a previous letter. So in this context, there's a man who is sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother, and Paul is saying even among the pagans, they would never do such a thing, and they would see this as, as a horrible thing, and you're tolerating it. So Paul is telling them that you need to expel this man from your midst, not tolerate this any longer, because what you're doing by accepting this man and tolerating him is you're saying that Christ accepts this. Christ is okay with this. Christ tolerates this. But here's what he's not saying. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, and not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Not or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, because then you would have to go out of the world. And every once in a while, and if I'm picking on you, not really sorry, but every once in a while you'll hear people say, well, you shouldn't, um, 
shouldn't go to the Marriott Hotel because it's owned by Mormons, or you shouldn't shop here because this is owned by... Well, you can't really shop and deal in the world and not deal with people who aren't believers. You really can't do it. That's not the point Paul's making. He's not saying have no associations with unbelievers. What is he saying? But now I'm writing to you, he says, to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul's not restricting in this passage any sort of relationship or any kind of association with unbelievers. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. That's not what he's saying. Um, Paul's point is that they should avoid partnering with anyone that associates the gospel with immorality by bringing somebody in as your ally, by saying, this is who my ally in gospel ministry, or by saying, this person's a believer that I'm working with, and you're endorsing their lifestyle, or you're endorsing a false message, or you're endorsing a false representation of Christ, that is akin to bringing idols in to the temple of the living God. Paul is calling on them to be pure in their representation of Christ because of their identity as the temple of the living God. And he uses this series of rhetorical questions to compare them and the world, who they are and who the world is. So we have, don't be yoked with unbelievers. These, these are two different kinds. They don't go together. You're not pulling in the same direction. Have no partnership with, between righteousness and unrighteousness. Partnership is the idea of having shared purposes. Unrighteousness has very different purposes than does righteousness. What fellowship has light and darkness? And I think here is the, the way that you live. But you can't have light and darkness in the same place, can you? The, the light will drive out the darkness or the darkness will drown the light. You can't have light and darkness together walking in fellowship in the same way. One could imagine that this fellowship is what gives us the right to call on each, uh, on each other to do something that the world doesn't make, it, make any sense of. Um, if you think about in the book of Philemon, Paul writes to uh, Philemon, who owns a man named Onesimus. Onesimus is his slave. And Paul appeals to him, based on the fellowship that we have together, to release Onesimus to me. Now think if he's not a fellow partner in the gospel, if he's not, uh, doesn't have fellowship with him, if he's writing to a pagan, say, hey, release your slave because he's, he's useful to me, he would laugh in his face because they don't have fellowship together. They, they're, they're completely different. They have a different identity. What accord does Christ have with Belial? Belial is a name for Satan, meaning worthless or treacherous. I mean, can you imagine God sitting down and signing a contract with the devil? That's kind of the idea. You're trying a peace treaty with Satan. What accord does Christ have with Belial? What portion, here he's thinking of inheritance, the eternal state, what portion does an unbeliever share with a believer? And then again, the point, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? We house God. We dare not bring idols into it. We need a higher view of the church. And when I say that we need a higher view of the church, I don't mean that we need less kids running around in the sanctuary. 
I don't mean that we need to oh, make sure you don't eat donuts because your body is the, <laughs> the temple of the Holy Spirit. What I mean is we need to know who we are in Christ. To be called the temple of the Holy Spirit is a really deep and frightful thing because we represent who Christ is. We represent who God is to the world around us. We need a higher view of the church. And to have a higher view of the church, we can't contaminate the church with, with, with un, unbelief, with what is dark, with what is not true, with what is not good, with what is not of God. We in the world are a different breed. We can't be yoked together. We have a different goal. We have a different lifestyle. We can't walk together. We have a different Lord. We can't live in harmony together. We have a different destiny. We won't inherit together. We house a living God, not a dead one. Righteousness and evil can't be one. Darkness and light can't be one. Christ and Belial can't be one. And the temple of the living God cannot house idols. This is a high destiny, a high calling. This is who we are in Christ. We house the living God. I'm going to pick up in the text again, that second half of verse 16, as Paul reminds the Corinthians who they are and why they can't be yoked to these false apostles. For we are, he says, the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, Paul's quote here from the Old Testament is actually, and I won't go into all of them. Um, You could look them up later if you want, but it's a compendium of six Old Testament references. He's taking six different verses from the Old Testament, and he's putting them all together. And the reason he's doing that is he's talking about kind of a, a, a meta principle, this view from the whole Old Testament pointing towards this truth, this reality. And the summation of these quotes is that God's continued presence in Israel in the Old Testament was conditional upon Israel's holiness and separation from uncleanness and idolatry. And the force of these references is to say that like Israel, the Corinthians have God dwelling in their midst. They're the very temple of the Holy Spirit. But just as we saw Israel walk away and worship false gods and go into exile and be expelled from the land, similarly, If the Corinthians do not continue in exclusive worship of the true and living God, if they bring idols into the temple along with the living God, they too will face judgment. So to correct the error of the Corinthians thinking, Paul's reminding them of who they are in Christ. They're not merely servants of the living God, though they are. They're not merely representatives of the living God, though they are. They are the temple of the living God. In the Old Testament, the temple was where worshipers went to meet with God. It was the symbol of God's relational presence on the earth. And for them to partner in, with unbelievers in the way that they have been is analogous to bringing idols into the Holy of Holies. Being the temple is a high calling. I want to pause here because I, I want us to get the full force of what it means to be the temple of the living God. This is one of those themes that runs throughout Scripture really, truly, from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22. This is a massive um, subject in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
So the Bible teaches that God created the earth as, as a temple, in a sense, as a place to be worshipped. That's what Solomon says when he builds the temple. The whole earth was created to be a temple for you and for you to be worshipped. How can you be contained in this house? But what we see in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is that there's perfect fellowship between God and man. There's no temple in the same sense in the garden because there's no separation between Adam and Eve and God. It says that Adam and Eve walked with him in the cool of the evening. They walked with God. They had perfect fellowship with God and union with God. There was no separation. But what sin did was separate two things that never intended to be separated, heaven and earth. Heaven and earth were not meant to be separate realms. Heaven was supposed to be on the earth. Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship, perfect communion with God. But sin separated heaven and earth. Humans were expelled from Eden. But God doesn't give up on the human race, and God doesn't give up on dwelling among his people. And we start to see, as the pages of, of scriptures are turned, that people start calling on the name of the Lord again. It said, Seth, Adam's third son, called on the name of the Lord. People began calling on the name of the Lord. And we see people begin to walk with God. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. It's, it's supposed to bring your mind back to Adam and Eve walking God, with God. There's fellowship with God on the earth. And then God chose Abraham. And the purpose for choosing Abraham wasn't just because Abraham was special, but Abraham was supposed to be the father of a nation of priests to represent who God was to the world. That Abraham was, in a sense, his, the people of God were in a sense a sort of temple where, where people could come and meet with God. And then God makes for himself, has a, a tabernacle made to represent his, his relationship with Israel and his presence among Israel, his relational presence on the earth. And the, and the spirit of God comes and rests in the, in the tabernacle. And then when we have the temple built, the spirit of God comes and rests in the temple, the relational presence of God on the earth. But as the story of the Old Testament goes, there comes this moment where Israel's sins continue and continue. They bring in false gods. They even begin sacrificing their children to these false gods. And there's this moment where it says Ichabod. And Ichabod is the word that means the glory has departed, that God was not among them in the way he had been. The relational presence of God was gone from the temple. Israel went into exile and, in, and out of the land. They were expelled from the land until... John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word, that's Jesus, that's Christ. The Word became flesh, and the Word that most of our translations have is dwelled, but it's also the Word tabernacled. Jesus came and tabernacled among us. Jesus became the relational presence, God in the flesh. How do you know what, who God is? How do you know what God is like? Jesus showed us what God was like. He was the temple, if you will, on the earth. Jesus dies. He's raised from the dead. He goes to heaven and he sends us the Holy Spirit. And now we, indwelt by the Spirit of God, like the temple was, like the tabernacle was, like Jesus was, we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you look forward to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, what you see is that heaven comes to earth there's no need for a temple because God and humans dwell together in perfect harmony as it was intended. There's no separation. So Christian, this is who you are. You're fulfilling the role of the tabernacle. You're fulfilling the role of the Garden of Eden. 
You're fulfilling the role of the temple. You are, in a sense, not in every sense, you are fulfilling the role of Jesus. Jesus tabernacled among us. What does that mean? He showed the glory of God. He shows us who God is and what God was like. And that's a role he's given to us as his representatives to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, housed by the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. This is why we must remain pure and separate. We're the temple of the living God. So Paul calls, calls the Corinthians to separate from these false teachers, to be singularly devoted to the truth of the gospel and the worship of and devotion to the living and true God. Although Paul has elsewhere said, he's not restricting any association with unbelievers. There's certain associations with the world that are necessary. But there should be a clear separation from the world within the church itself. There needs to be a clear separation from the world within the church itself, partnering with the world in such a way that misrepresents Christ or betrays the truth of the gospel is akin to bringing pagan idols into the temple of the living God. So Paul has called on the Corinthians to not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. He has reminded them of who they are in Christ, and now he calls on them to cleanse themselves and live lives of holiness. Picking up in chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul calls on the Corinthians to be who they are. If they are the temple of God, they need to clean up this temple to reflect the glory carried within and remove anything associated with false gods or false representations of who God is. Their partnership with these false teachers defiles the gospel and it blasphemes the living God because it presents God as being who he is not. So this idea of cleansing flesh and spirit, Paul in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere um, talks about how sexual immorality defiles the flesh. Here, I think he's, he's worried about their defilement of the spirit as they worship idols, as they worship false gods. You need to clean up both the spirit and the flesh. Perfecting is the idea of completing. It's not the idea of being perfect morally and never sinning right now in this life. It's the idea of bringing to perfect, devote, bringing your worship to completion, complete devotion, worship of the true God only, not divided, not shared with any false god or idols. We must be rid of our idols. There is a reverence. There should be a reverence in how we conduct our lives as Christians, both corporately, as, a, uh, as the church, and individually. God is holy, and as God's people, how we live and conduct ourselves is a statement about who he is. I'm not a Catholic, or the son of a Catholic, but there's a story that in the 13th century, the Pope pointed to his papal palace and said, Peter can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. To which, and I don't know if this is true, but to which St. Dominic apparently replied, no, but neither can he say, get up and walk. As the world becomes worldly, it loses its power. As the church adopts idols of greed and power and celebrity and fame and notoriety and cultural acceptance and cultural relevance, it loses its power. Although we cannot go out of the world, 
We are called to not be of the world. As Christians, we must be careful about our associations and partnerships. We are to demonstrate, demonstrate God's love for the world and how we interact with others, while at the same time display a holy separation from the world and its system. This is sometimes a careful balancing act. In the context of the Corinthians, they were enamored by preachers who spoke eloquently with a wisdom of sorts and lifestyle that accorded with the way the world worked and saw them as honorable and worthy of praise. I would love to say that is never the temptation of the church, but that would be untrue. We sometimes are caught up by celebrities who tell us what we want to hear and what feels good to us, who tickle our ears with unrighteousness. They preach a gospel of of prosperity or of wealth, but not the gospel of Christ. So Paul in this passage is confronting their idolatry and with the reality of who they are in Christ, and he confronts us in this passage Um, our idolatry, and confronts us with who we are in Christ. We must be rid of the idols of this age. What it means to be yoked together is not to have no association, no partnership of any kind. Again, you'd have to go out of the world to do that. But it is taking on a common identity. It is taking on a common partnership. It is to be somebody's ally. But we can't be allies in this sense, in the gospel sense, if we're going in different directions. If we're trying to pull this way and our partner is pulling this way, we're not going anywhere. It's worse than that. But as one commentator put it, what Paul does not have in view is the life of the church in the world. We have to live in the world and interact with the world. What he has in view here is the world coming into the church. How worldly has the church become? There's a, there's a danger in, in under-applying these verses. I think there's a danger in over-applying them. I think the, the primary view here is of the church, not as individuals, but as the church corporately, who we endorse, who we say is, is us, who we say is part of us. And I think this can be true in a number of areas. For, for one, it could be endorsing false teachers, maybe even false teachers who have some of the right words, but their lifestyle does not reflect who Christ has called us to be. We need to be careful of that. It can be people who teach false doctrine that maybe they're popular and maybe it's to our advantage to partner with them in some way, but that would betray bringing idols into the church. It can be true in philosophies, and sometimes this can be kind of a slippery slope, a little bit dangerous. Um, but as Christians, we're called to help the poor. We're called to, you know, to be charitable, to be loving. But I think sometimes that we, we take... We have some agreement with the world in some areas, and what we do is we lose the gospel. I want to be kind. I want to be compassionate. I want to be caring to everyone, but I do not want to bring in the world's philosophy. The the primary problem that we have as human beings is not poverty, although that is a problem, and I I do think that we should care about poverty. The Bible says so. I don't, I do think that mental health is a real problem, and we should care about mental health. But the primary problem that the world has is sin, and the primary solution that we have is the gospel, is the gospel. And sometimes we compromise that. Unintentionally, slowly, we drift into it. I also think we need to be careful of our political associations. I'm not saying don't vote. You should. Vote. Participate in, in, in the government. Participate the, the rights that you have as an American citizen. But be careful. Be careful with your associations and your partnerships in ways that might seem to endorse things that Christ does not endorse. 
Be careful. Be careful that the, there's no idolatry in your heart that makes you start to see the world's problems as political and not a problem of a relationship and proper relationship with God. One way that this passage is often applied, and I don't think it's completely off course, but probably the way it's most often applied is in terms of marriage. The not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever is applied as not marrying an unbeliever. And I I don't think that that's a completely inappropriate application of this, but I do want to say that Paul approaches those two issues very differently. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that if you're married to an unbeliever, to remain in the marriage. He is not here telling them to remain in the relationship that they have with the, the false teachers. He's telling them to totally sever their relationship with these false teachers. So it's not the same. I would say, and Paul says this, so I, I feel like I'm in good company, um, to, be, to marry in the Lord. That if you are not married, uh, to seek a marriage with another believer, I do think it's a, it's a relevant application to this because there is a partnership in the gospel that comes with raising children. There is a partnership in the gospel that comes with families representing who God is and how God has designed things in the world. But that's not the primary um, emphasis of this text, and Paul doesn't apply it in the same way. Um, Paul says that if you're in a marriage with an unbeliever, stay. Don't seek um, divorce. So there's some nuance there. Our calling is a high one. That's the point of this text. Our calling is a high one. We are temples of the living God. Our words and actions don't only reflect on us, they reflect on God. How we live and what we say reflects what we're saying God is and who God is. What are we saying about God? Although we are thankfully saved by grace through faith and not by works, we're called to live lives of reverent holiness. We are called to be a holy people, filling the earth with the presence of the living God. And I do want to connect this to the gospel because the wonderful truth here, the wonderful truth is you don't earn being the temple. You're not the temple because you were a good kid and went to church and Sunday school and Wednesday night church if you had it. You're not, you're not the temple of the Holy Spirit if you read your Bible every day. You're not the temple of the Holy Spirit if you avoid certain sins and do certain good deeds. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit because God has made you the temple of the Holy Spirit and you are righteous and holy because you have the righteousness of Christ, not your own righteousness. This is not something you earn. It's something you are. And so what Paul is saying, be who you are. It's not something you earn. It's who you are. Be who you are. I would love for you to stand with me as we pray. Father, thank you for your word. That's a a foundation for how we think and how we view the world. Father, thank you for your son who revealed you to us, that we know who you are. We know the depth of your love and your care for us because of who Jesus was and how he modeled who you were. Father, thank you for your spirit. As we or live up, try to live up to this high calling. It's intimidating. It's, it's difficult. It's beyond our ability. But you've given us your spirit and you have empowered us to live lives of holiness, not based on our own strength or our own power, but in the spirit's power and because of who Christ is and he has made us to be. Father, thank you for the gospel. Father, help us to be pure in our devotion to you and to the truth of your word. And we pray for your help in the name of Jesus and in the power of the spirit. Amen. <laughs>